If you're like most mission-driven professionals that I know, your relationship to work and your career have changed since the pandemic began. I'm Jen Walker-Wall, career strategist, resume writer, and founder of WorkWonders Careers. This season, we're talking to mission-driven professionals to hear how their relationship to work, careers, and ambition have changed over the past couple of years. I hope you'll join us. Welcome to Reimagining Ambition. Hey everyone, welcome back to Reimagining Ambition. Probably due to my own background and connection in these worlds, a lot of the folks you've heard from come from nonprofit and higher education institutions. And today I'm really excited to share an interview with Dr. Megan Singh. She's a bilingual school psychologist who works in a K-12 school district in the greater Boston area. I'm so grateful that she spent some time with me in the fall and shared more detail about the work that she did with her colleagues to accommodate students during the remote learning period, how they were challenged to tackle all kinds of problems from tactical and practical to legal, and some insight into the challenges of working in public education even now. What we have asked public educators especially to do in the last few years, it's a lot. And I really appreciate her insight and perspective, and I hope you'll give her story a listen. Take us back to February of 2020 and tell me what your life looked like, what you were doing, what life was like for you. Yeah, in February of 2020, I was working in a public school as a bilingual school psychologist. My job included a lot of transitioning families into the district and supported them to get the resources they needed, doing community outreach activities to kind of demystify special education consulting with teams in the district about students who have bilingual needs. And at that point, trying to pilot an ELL, English language learners program to try to do progress monitoring and data tracking for them. And I was so excited about it. And at what point did you realize that the pandemic, which at this point sort of felt like it was happening elsewhere, even though we know that now is not really not the case. (laughs) When did you realize it was going to have a really big impact on you and how you were working? So I remember March 13th, we started to hear, oh, we might be shutting down for a week or two and we'll be back. We're going to send kids home with some notebooks and papers and it'll be fine. We'll, we'll come back soon. And then as it became clear that we were not coming back soon, it became um, almost like a panic response from a lot of people. Like, what are we going to do with all these children at home? What are families going to do? How are kids going to get educated? Because we can do a two week break. Snow days happen. Life happens. We are used to that. We can make up that time. But this bigger idea about not having access to buildings, not having access to food, not having internet in all the homes of the kids that we're servicing, it became a really complicated thing. The other piece is I facilitate special education meetings, individual education programs, IEPs are legally binding documents, and they have very strict timelines that you cannot mess around with. But we had never done a remote meeting in the entire time. I'm in my 12th year as a school psychologist. And before 2020, we never did a remote meeting. Even when I would try to say, well, can we have the parent come by phone? There would be pushback because you need actual paper signatures. And the idea that we would be able to do that was really hard for folks. And there's also a technical piece to it too, like how you have secure connections with folks because it's very sensitive HIPAA, FERPA information where we need to protect identities. We also had to find a way for families to be able to sign documents for us that we can't implement an IEP until it's been signed by the family. 
So what are we going to do? Mail them home? Okay, but teachers don't have printers in their house. How are we going to get them copies of this? So it was a, a big jump in with two feet. And I will give our ICTS folks a lot of credit for pulling things together and finding ways to make things work. Our legal counsel for finding ways to make it okay for us to hold meetings via the internet. I will not give a lot of credit to the Department of Education. So what I hear are administrative issues like getting things signed, finding a version of Zoom that's like HIPAA, FERPA compliant, and these really very different set of issues, right? Which are about meeting people's basic needs and learning needs during this time. So like, how do we divvy up who's responsible for figuring out solutions? Some of these seem a lot easier to solve than others. Yeah. And I think that most people, when they found a problem, tried to find a solution, that it wasn't a lot of pass the buck, which I am always grateful for my team members who are like, this is the problem, let's do it together. When it came to technology, I don't know how the district did it, but they found hotspots for families who didn't have access to the internet at home. And I know at least one assistant principal went to a person's house and set the hotspot up for them because they didn't have English as a home language, they were really struggling, and this kid needed to go to school. So that above and beyond that people were doing, it feels like that's been forgotten since the pandemic has moved forward, that teachers, educators, administrators did a lot of really out there stuff to make things happen for kids and families. Do you want to share like some of what you saw from your colleagues during this time? I'm sure it felt really common, right? Like we've normalized the extreme ways that educators, public educators in particular, have gone out of their way to support their students. But can we talk a little bit about what you saw? Yeah, I think food insecurity was another big thing that we were trying to tackle. So the district came up with a plan to have available to go meals. Like you could come to the building, grab a bag and leave. So there was limited contact, but still access to food. The district was already very close to one-to-one -one for devices. So that wasn't a huge lift, but for the little ones, the kindergarten, first grade, we weren't putting them on Chromebooks. So helping them either transition to a Chromebook or giving them access to a tablet. And then how do you use that tablet in a way? Tiny people do not have great attention spans. The really? estimation <laughs> is their age plus one. So if you're a five-year-old, you can focus for about six minutes. So if you're doing Zoom instruction and you're trying to teach a whole bunch of kindergartners, you have about six minutes before they switch into another tab. Mine's not much yeah. better. <laughs> <Come> <laughs> There was that initial transition, and I think we thought it was going to be short. And then we start to realize, right, it's going to be long. How long were you in crisis mode? I don't think we've left. Yeah. I think that it's still crisis mode in a different flavor. One of the biggest concerns I have writ large, not just with my school district or schools in general, is that we have unrecognized trauma from this experience. And we haven't processed it. We haven't talked about it. Like the loss that people felt from just losing the everyday experience of living, but also the loss of safety, the loss of feeling like I can trust the world, it's going to be fine. And now we can't believe that. So that unprocessed trauma has resulted in incredibly burnt out educators. And I do a lot of support to other adults. And the way that they come at me right now, I had to send an email asking them to please be nice to me because I know you're all stressed out, but if you yell at me, this is not going to work. So they're so burnt out, they can't inhibit. Like executive functioning is one of the most complicated things that we have. It's all in the frontal lobe. And when you are in trauma mode, when you are in that elevated state for so long, that frontal lobe is not accessible. 
So we're asking everybody to do these Herculean tasks with limited resources cognitively. Whereas if we took just maybe a day or two to name that this is really hard, let's talk about everything we lost. Okay, let's talk about everything we gained because we did gain some things in this process. And then what do we want this to look like? Whereas now we're just like, okay, we're back. We're going to do things that we always did. And I don't think we have to. Why can't we do it differently still? Like take the things that worked, leave behind the things that didn't. One of the things that came up for these conversations, especially for folks in education, mostly in higher education, is there was some gratitude almost for the experience because Mm -hmm. it required new ways of doing things that in some ways were actually better than the way we were doing them before. And there was just no momentum or buy-in or like lots of gatekeepers that sort of prevented the evolution that a lot of folks thought was necessary. And not that anyone thought Mm -hmm. it was worth the cost, right? But like there certainly there are things that came out of this that were really helpful. Mm -hmm. What were some of those things for you as a professional or that you were seeing your colleagues prefer or that worked better? So I have two things that kind of crystallized the good things that came out of it. There was one family that we got to come to the table for a meeting virtually who hadn't been to an IEP meeting in three or four years. They couldn't take the time off. They couldn't make it to the building or they didn't feel comfortable coming to the building. Whatever the barrier was, they just didn't come. And that's not right. That's not fair. And being able to meet that family where they were and tell them how their kid is doing just to them was fabulous. And it made me so happy. I'm like, this is why we do this. This is how we can be flexible with families. I'm thankful I still get to offer families virtual meetings if that's what they prefer. The other thing was I was covering a maternity leave as well during the pandemic. So I was working at a middle school with that team. And there was a student who I'd actually known from kindergarten who was then a seventh grader. And he has a hard time connecting with kids in the classroom and participating appropriately. He found a way to create a game online based on the subject matter that they were doing. And the kids loved it. Like it was a really great touchstone for him to connect to his peers. And he felt so proud. I felt so proud. Like that opportunity would not have existed without the opportunity for online learning. Wow. I know because of a family member, a little bit of what it was like to be in a K through 12 school during this time. Can I just turn it over to you for a few moments to share what you might like to share about that experience. So when I think about the spring of 2020, one of the major questions remained about evaluation, that part of special education is testing kids. And the infrastructure for virtual testing was not in place in my district. There are some online platforms you can use for cognitive testing, academic testing, but we did not have them, only paper and pencil. So we had to get permission from families to delay the testing and then started testing in person in September 2020. And I was back in the building a couple of days a week to test kids specifically. I felt good that my district provided consultation with public health officials. Like we could go to town halls and hear about what mitigation factors are in place that my union advocated so strongly to make sure there were health and safety advocates within every building. So the classroom that I was using as a testing space was very big. So there was lots of air circulation, which is fabulous, but I had to leave the windows open in January in the Boston area. So it was 60 degrees in the classroom. The kid was in his coat shivering, like I was freezing. So I ended up bringing a space heater from home flipping a desk to make a block underneath the table to reflect the heat back. 
but we also had a partition shield between us so that there was a, a block. And then we both wore masks. And sometimes I would also wear a visor, a clear visor, if I needed to assess the kid without my face being covered. Because there's another piece of special education testing where I say a word and you need to tell me a rhyming word or you need to tell me a word that goes with that word. And if you can't understand my articulation because you can't see my mouth, that's really going to inhibit the score of the kid. And I don't want to penalize a kid because of the situation that we're in. I would make appointments with families and I'd have to ask them, have you traveled out of the state? Have you done this, that, or the other thing? This was all before the vaccines were available. And they would say, oh, no, we haven't gone anywhere. And then there were at least two occasions where I talked to the kid. And they're like, oh, yeah, we were in New Hampshire last weekend. And I was like, are you kidding me? I would have rescheduled you or had you test before you came in. Not that tests were frequently available at that point. But the recklessness that other people could visit upon you was really hard to deal with. Mitigating my own risks. Because I also had a very high-risk grandmother who has COPD and all these things. And she wasn't allowed to see people by and large. But when I did see her, I would make sure I had three days from the last time I saw a new human that I was feeling great. And then I would wear my visor. She had some hearing problems. So I would wear my visor so she could read my lips and sit six feet from her. So the family's not always understanding that teachers, staff members had other people they were caring for too. Like I wanted to keep my students safe because they are going home to their families. I don't know who lives with them, who they're going to come in contact with. It didn't feel like that went two ways all the time which was frustrating and scary. And one of the safety precautions we were told a lot about was, oh, we're asking families to report. I'm like, yeah, you're asking them, but that doesn't mean they're honest. Humans are not always honest. The kids, I also felt like I had to work harder with them to get them to open up a little bit. That usually it's a pretty quick process for me. It's five, 10 minutes and I've got them moving and we're happy and we're talking. Whereas they had almost kind of lost that. How do I interact with this new human? Do I need to follow certain rules? So I would just review the rules. Like, this is how we're going to keep you safe. This is how I'm going to be safe. We're going to do these things. And then we're going to move on. So that was essentially my winter and spring and fall of 2020 into 2021 was testing at a different middle school, which is honestly my favorite part of my job is getting to spend time with kids. So that actually felt meaningful. Whereas I think if I had spent Every single day on Zoom meetings, processing paperwork, I would have lost my mind. Sure. Yeah. Having to sort of bear the burden of other people's compliance or lack thereof with sort of like best practices at the time was Mm -hmm. one of the hardest things I think to watch. And I know people were terrible self-reports on, have you done anything or gone? Because when I said I haven't been anywhere, I mean, I'm going to the grocery store, having someone bring my groceries out to me. And I'm putting Mm -hmm. them in the trunk and that's the most human interaction I'm having beyond the person who also lives in my house. But you start to realize that like doing nothing to some people means seeing their family in another state or like who knows what, right? Especially as things sort of like opened up beyond that initial period. And I'm also hearing in your story how to better accommodate the kids you served, like you took on much greater risk. And that was really exacerbated by some people's behavior, which is really mind blowing and so challenging. And I'm so sorry that that's where that was. You had mentioned the Department of Education, like who's in charge of keeping public educators and staff safe? So that's a district responsibility. The superintendent of the district is responsible for health and safety stuff. 
if you're in a union district, they have to do it in concert with the union because it's an OSHA health and safety responsibility. I was able to get tested twice a week, which is remarkable that I could get, and I made sure to schedule my testing so it was around the testing times. Yeah. And I could get the swab. They would run it in a group. They did the group testing for most of the time. And then they would email you and say, you're fine or you're not fine. Don't come back. We did have a fair number of cases. The district produced a dashboard. The dashboard was not always accurate. That's another piece is that reporting. So if a kid was out and the family didn't report it was COVID, then it's just marked as absence, not marked as an exposure. The Department of Education that I was speaking about is the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. And I will give them some wiggle room in the fact that the Federal Department of Education was not clear on their guidance. Big surprise. But the way that they communicated with educators, especially around special education, was a hot mess. Every Friday, there was a new directive, a new announcement that often contradicted the previous announcements. So I would tell a family one thing, okay, this is how we're going to do our meeting next week. I'd find out on Friday that I can't do it that way anymore. And I'd have to reroute with the family and hope that they could be flexible with me. Like you can get these kinds of signatures electronically. You can't do it for that one. You have to have this notice before our meeting versus something else that they had said before. The level of frustration was exceedingly high with special educators. Like what you can or can't provide virtually. There was another issue where clinicians who have licenses based in the state, like if you're an occupational therapist or a physical therapist, speech pathologist, counselor, you are licensed to work in your state. So if a family is spending their pandemic in Vermont, can we actually provide services to them? Because now it's an interstate service provision. And we were able to get clarification from the professional organizations that oversee those credentials and licensure that, okay, we can work around it this time, we'll get a waiver. Those are the kinds of questions that I don't think the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education really thought about when they were just making edicts and not collaborating with us. That must have just been so frustrating. I know in the best of times when I have to redo my work because expectations weren't clear, like I get a little salty. So like in these crisis contexts, right? Like that must be so frustrating. And also for the families who may not actually have the flexibility to radically change things at the last minute. I was eight out of 10 mad most of the time and I still have not forgiven them. They also haven't taken ownership for the behavior. Like we teach kids, you do something badly, you fix it and or you apologize for it. They have not fixed it. They have not apologized. So there's nothing for me to forgive until they rectify what they did. Yeah, I completely understand that. I'm curious about your take on this learning loss conversation. Yeah, I have a lot of opinions about that. So I think that the first thing to remember is that we can't teach a child if they die. That our number one priority always needs to be keeping kids safe. And you need to do Maslow before you do Bloom. So make sure that you're doing the safety, security, feelings of identity intact before you try to teach them to read because you can't access reading if you can't calm yourself and feel centered. When we say kids lost 19 points or whatever it is they're saying that kids lost, I think it is 19 points. The standards that we use are arbitrary. Developmentally referenced norms, those are not things that are immovable. Those are things that we decided, I don't even know who we is. Whatever organization decided that this was where students have to be at a certain point in time, it's not something that you have to speak by 
this age full sentences or else it's a developmental delay. So if we think about our kids, we think about our families and everything that they went through, losing some ground. Yes, of course, because there was a not safe world. And that ties also into the systemic trauma that we have experienced through racial injustice and feeling unsafe in the community. I work primarily with students of color. And if I'm going to expect them to engage with me to do their work, I need to help them process the feelings that they're having before they can access all of their brain. That I can't expect them to just turn everything off and be present. And I feel like because we weren't present for that physically, it was hard to always engage with kids and families around it. I think we did an okay job, but it's definitely something we're still working through. Learning loss seems like the best possible kind of loss in this scenario, right? Like given the alternatives and there was Mm -hmm. always going to be some kind of loss, like no way to sort of avoid that in this scenario. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you're thinking about your own work as you're going through this. You said some days were like really meaningful and you were an eight out of 10 angry on most days. What are you feeling about your career? So I've always wanted to be a public educator. There is never a time I can remember in my life that I didn't want to work with students, that I didn't want to work in public schools. And it's an act of faith. It's an act of love. It's an act of courage sometimes to put myself so vulnerably into places where I know the need exists. My goal is always to be the kid that I needed when I was their age. The difficulty has lied in being able to be present, hold myself accountable, hold everyone else accountable, and protect myself thereafter. That the emotional toll that this job has taken in a different way than it did before. Like I'm having to be very strict about the times that I work because this job will let you work the entire day if you want to. There will always be more work. Reminding myself that there is no such thing as a special education emergency. There is a psychiatric emergency, yes, but no one is going to send you to special education jail. That's not a real thing. It's also given me the courage to say, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to figure this out for kids. There are no rules anymore. So if this is what the kid needs. This is where we're going to do it. And I'll fight with you later about it. We're going to do this. There's a case that I'm working on right now at an elementary level where the conversation is around placement. Do they require a substantially separate placement in a smaller classroom for kids with significant disabilities? Or are they going to be best served in a general education classroom with supports for special education? And I looked at the kid's scores. I looked at her in the classroom. It was like, this doesn't make sense to me why she's not pulled out. Like she's in like fourth or fifth grade and she's reading at a kindergarten level. She is not accessing that curriculum and we are not providing the supports and instruction she needs. So I met with the school-based team. I'm again, helping out with maternity leave. And I went to the team and I said, talk to me about this decision. How did you make it? I know there was a thinking behind it. Help me understand it. And their thinking was, well, the kids in the substantially separate class wouldn't be a good social fit for her. And I said, well, then why don't we do part-time in the the smaller classroom and then she can do science and history in her regular class. And they were like, well, we don't really do that. I was like, well, why not? What's stopping us? And they were like, well, and I was like, no, I mean, I will take the hit for whatever the department might say about this, but we're gonna do what's right for this kid. So you just help me figure out what's right. And I think that I held that value prior to the pandemic, but I, was so bound by rules and expectations, like this is the way we do things, that I would be slower to flip a table and say, nope, we're going to just take care of the kid. 
versus now I'm walking into the room like that. Yeah. As a lifelong quick table flipper myself, like (laughs) I really like when, you know, you submitted your form to be on the podcast, I stopped following rules and started doing what people needed. That's, I think, one of the ways that like mission-driven professionals are making their jobs work because Mm -hmm. like we get into this work to do good and then the nature of the work itself actually compromises our sense of integrity as professionals at various times. And I think some of the ways people hold on and kind of prevent the moral injury is by doing the right thing, forgetting about the rules and dealing with the consequences later. And part of me is wondering like what role the pandemic played in helping people recalibrate risk, right? Like, oh, it felt like crossing the line was really bad, but then you realize these institutions and organizations that have all these rules are willing to expose you to COVID over and over again, or Mm -hmm. like are willing to compromise student learning and and support and all of that. And it just becomes less of a risk in some ways. Yeah. And what are they going to do to me? Fire me? Go ahead. There is a shortage of school psychologists and there's an even bigger shortage of bilingual school psychologists fight me. We're going to do what kids and even to maybe a slightly lesser extent because adults can be more flexible and I'm not here for adults. I'm here for kids. But like if a teacher needs extra time to do something, I'm going to give them the extra time. Like I'll talk to the family and say, we're running a little late, but we're working on it. Advocating for them is a close second to advocating for my kids. I can't do my job if I don't have special educators in the building. And they don't feel safe or supported or like their jobs are manageable. They were barely manageable before the pandemic with the demands and paperwork and disenfranchisement of professionals. I need them and I need them to know that I need them. So I purposefully engage with my team members about, I value you. I see what you're doing. I appreciate you. How can I help you reach that goal? Because I feel like a lot of the isolation that we experienced during the pandemic has continued, that we haven't re-cohesively connected. Too much has happened, right? And that's my sense is that things have gone off in so many different directions. What would you like people to know about being in a public school now? You said earlier that the crisis wasn't over. So for people who, they're probably not listening to this podcast, (laughs) but let's imagine they've accidentally stumbled upon it. What would you tell someone who thinks the crisis is over? Last year, I broke up my first physical fight. I had been in public education for 11 years and never had to intervene physically with kids. Even though I've worked ages three to 22, it's not like I was secure from something else because kids were so dysregulated and they couldn't figure out how to manage being in school again. They couldn't figure out the social piece. It was really bad for the freshmen. And we're almost having to remind students what it looks like to be a student. And that social emotional need, that behavioral support has been the primary piece that we need to get taken care of before we can get to learning. And it has gotten better than it was last year because kids are getting better and they know more practice. The level of engagement that students express is significantly lower. And I'm still trying to figure that out. Why? Was it because they felt disconnected from school for two years for some of them? Most of our students with high needs were back in September of 2020 in classrooms every day with their teachers. But for general ed kids or kids who their families elected not to send them, which I totally respect, the practice of being in a classroom, like I was saying before, when I would meet a kid for testing, they would have this like delay of how do I interact with this new human? And it's still happening. So there's also a real disengagement with the traditional respect you expect other people to have for each other. 
I know I see it in the supermarket and on the roads too. I was going to say, is this a classroom thing or is this like an adult led? Yeah. I think this is a human thing right now where if a teacher tells a kid to go to class and it's not a teacher that they know, you could get any answer about where to put it or, okay, thank you. I'm on my way. So that is something that we're trying to figure out that we don't have an answer for yet. We're just trying to build connections and relationships because we know that if you have a trusting adult relationship in the building, you are going to be more successful. So let's try and build those. But beyond that, we're still trying to figure out how to get kids engaged in learning again. I think the remaining fear that I have is that we're just going to forget everything that happened. That in our rush to go back to normal, which is not possible because the normal that you're trying to compare it to existed in a world where there wasn't a pandemic. You can't ignore a thing that happened. I worry that we're going to just try to pretend that it didn't happen when rectifying it, addressing it, healing from it is really the only way forward. Yeah, I share that fear. I'm very grateful that you took the time to speak with us today. Thanks to you and your colleagues. You are essential. We all know it. You're absolutely not expendable. Thank you for your work. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to Dr. Singh for joining us this week. And thank you, as always, for listening. Next week on Reimagining Ambition, we're talking about pandemic-era employee appreciation gifts and why they largely missed the mark. We'll see you then. Thanks for joining me this week on Reimagining Ambition. Hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. If you'd like to help us share these stories with even more mission-driven listeners, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. And if you stumbled onto Reimagining Ambition because you're ready to explore what's possible for your career and you love practical career exploration, job search, and resume advice, please check out our private community podcast, Off the Clock. It's only available to folks who sign up. So join us at www.workwonderscareers.com slash podcast to learn more. You can also follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Check out the show notes for links to those accounts. See you next week.